So we've got a podcast now, huh? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> okay. We're a little late to the party. Everybody and their mother's got a podcast, but what is it that we're going to be talking about today? Uh, artificial intelligence. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I, I think I have a name for our podcast. It's called This Makes My Head Hurt. <laughs> yeah, but buckle up because you're about to get debriefed. Get to the bunker ASAP. The debrief's already started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so first, we all need to be on the same page about what it is and what it isn't. We're talking about AI, right? Yes, artificial intelligence. Here's the thing. I mean, I'm I'm sure you have a certain set of experiences that are very different from mine being the old guy. But honestly, every bit of artificial intelligence that I've ever seen has been in the movies and it always ends badly. <laughs> so I think the first, the first thing that I would equate with artificial intelligence in a computer being like a human being, I guess, would have been 2001 A Space Odyssey. So I think for me, it's movies too, but obviously a different decade. Uh, so for me, I think more about, you know, Tony Stark and Jarvis. Um, that's pretty much. Um, yeah, I think Marvel's got enough money already. Let's leave them out of this, okay? <laughs> well, to get a better understanding of what artificial intelligence is and isn't, we talked to Andrew Comendo, the former chief technology officer for Air Force Life Cycle Management Center Detachment 12, more commonly known as Kessel Run. for convolutional neural networks that are using AlexNet um, on the ImageNet data set, that is better than human performance for object detection. That is a narrow artificial intelligence for the specific task of object detection against the specific set of data called ImageNet, right? Wow. Using that particular algorithm. It's perfect for the first episode of This Makes My Head Hurt. Um... I mean, realistically, what I heard him say was blah, 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 artificial intelligence, blah, 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 data, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so let me rewind a little bit. Here is where uh, Mr. Comendo simplifies it. More broadly, if you wanted to give kind of a lay, layman's definition of artificial intelligence, uh, it would be something in the effect of a computing system or a mechanical system that can work without human input towards some particular goal state. Okay, so what he's saying is that AI can accomplish tasks without being micromanaged. It's like the senior airman of software, but unlike senior airmen, it can only accomplish tasks that it's been programmed to do. Only do what it's... So like the robot in Lost in Space. Danger, Sergeant Robinson, danger. Sort of. I mean, AI can do things like scan the real environment or the virtual one and warn humans of danger. But Hollywood tends to anthropomorphize AI uh, because let's face it, most humans just want something to go get them some more chips so they don't have to get off the couch. The fact is, the majority of AI is used in comparatively simple ways 
and it's much more calculated. Think of when you use Google's search engine and it predicts what you are looking for based on data collection from previous searches. It starts off like some rude rando interrupting you, but as you use it more, it becomes more like the rude friend that knows you well enough to complete your sentences. So you're saying it basically just guesses what it is you're looking to do by what you've done before? It doesn't really make decisions. It's just kind of compiling everything that you've done and then saying, oh, he'll probably do that again. So there are different kinds and classifications of AI. And then there are others that are like theoretical capabilities we might see in the future. Um, Captain Michael Kanan explains it pretty well. Yeah, I'm happy to go through those differences. There are a ton of tasks that AI is good at in our lives. All of those tasks, however, are singular, specialized, and specific. Some seem broad, but they all function within a narrow domain. So as sophisticated as these applications are and as impressive in their performance uh, that they become, they're nonetheless only capable of accomplishing the particular task for which they were designed. Unlike humans, they're not capable of applying strategies or knowledge or skills acquired in one area over to another area. So they're therefore called narrow AI. And regardless of how things may seem to be progressing with current technology and technologically visible approaches, the same algorithm that evaluates our investments just won't be able to also turn on a light when a cloud passes by our window or order a pizza when we're hungry. Narrow AI is therefore just referred to as weak AI, but it doesn't mean that it's weak. It's just inefficient or incapable of moving into a different domain. Narrow AI is in fact very strong, efficient, and quite capable at its purpose job. It's just incompetent at everything else. Captain Kanan was the Air Force Enterprise co-lead for artificial intelligence and machine learning. He's currently the director of operations at the U.S. Air Force Artificial Intelligence Accelerator at MIT. He also wrote a book called T-AI. Here, he explains the difference between the AI classifications, what capabilities we currently have, and where they could lead. Many people, and AI experts included, spent a ton of time and conversation speculating about the theoretical extremes AI might become capable of at some point in the future. Those conversations continue with people still discussing the implications mankind might face if it ever does achieve an ability to perform outside its design domain and beyond an intended purpose, which if it does and becomes capable of broad general intelligence, which is what that is, or worse, if it ever becomes capable of what's come to become super intelligence, which is an imaginative technology capable of exceeding humans in all areas of knowledge at once. But I want to make clear, when there's a fire at the door, I'm not always worried about lightning in the distance. We'll get there, and existential risk is incredibly important to talk about, but we need to experience along the way, and those technologies are not on the horizon for any technology that we know of right now, so it's kind of like, don't worry about the Terminator when China's around the corner. I think worry about the purposes to which we put our machines, right? So the underlying technologies and how they could be used. We want to, as a society, advance computer vision, for instance. It, it advances a number of sciences, just like any field of science. And it has applications that is going to better our lives. It currently does. But that same technology could easily be placed on, let's say, a weapon system 
and then just use to very simply target people who don't look like them. That could be done at home. It's something we need to deal with. So I think that dealing with the applications of machine learning are gonna keep us busy enough as opposed to standing around forecasting about whether you know there'll be some malignant evil consciousness in a machine. Okay, so general intelligence becomes super intelligence and super intelligence becomes... Not Skynet, not Skynet, okay? Are you sure? I'm positive Mr. Comindo actually had a great explanation for that kind of reasoning that rationalizes one form of artificial intelligence leading to another. When it comes to artificial superintelligence, it can beat any human at any task given. And again, when we say any, it really is any, uh, no matter what it is. And again, you can't, we can't even do that for humans against humans uh, to really be able to say. The closest thing we have are things like leaderboards in chess or go or the, you know, the Olympics. The Olympics every year we say, this is the fastest person. But the reality is the Olympics tests, who's the fastest person who have, who's actually competed in the Olympics? It's not who's the fastest person on the planet because not everybody's running. It's who's the fastest person in the Olympics, right? And the idea is that this has been the democratic process has rolled out through the, you know, all everything that we've done, who these fastest people are for each country, and we throw them all in the same place. Uh, in reality, it's not necessarily a reflection of that because not everybody has access to the Olympic training facility or whatever it is, right? So I would argue that most of these questions are kind of silly because we haven't even defined measures for them. Um, or what would, we, what would we do if if we achieved it? Then what? Because as far as I can tell, there's 7 billion general intelligences walking around. Uh, they're not artificial. Most of them don't do a whole lot. Uh, and the ones that do a whole lot often do the wrong thing and mess everything up for everybody. So if it's not one program that does everything, even if it's not necessarily every kind of program, then how how does it get used? It's not necessarily to do things we can't do, but also to do things that we can do much quicker, like math. The size and scale of the numbers we use in everyday life have gotten much larger, as the scope of our lives has gone from crops and animals on the farm to millions of apples in a warehouse. So until very recently, extreme numbers were really of no relevance to us uh, because there wasn't a practical need for us to comprehend anything beyond small numbers, like those cows in the field. And it wasn't so long ago that words like a million, a billion, and a trillion, they didn't mean anything. They quite literally didn't exist. But now it's numbers we routinely used. But I don't think we appreciate necessarily those scales because of course they again are important to the number of processes that can take place. So let's use a common thought experiment with the concept of time to imagine counting numbers. So if I said to count to the number 1,000, you would think to yourself, well, that's not totally unreasonable. And if you count one additional number every second without stopping, you'll take almost 17 minutes to reach 1,000. And while it takes a little bit longer than you probably thought to count to 1,000, it's not a big deal. But if you continue doing that, what would happen if you wanted to count to a million, for instance. Well, if you did that without stopping, from this second on, every second, that's gonna take 277 hours or 11 and a half days of work. What about a billion, though? It would take you 32 years, 
of continuous nonstop counting just to do that. And if you want to get to a trillion, well, it'd be 32,000 years. So I think that reminds us that when we talk about calculations like, you know, 3.9 gigahertz on your machine, what are we really talking about? We're talking about iterations. Machines are doing that. They have an unblinking eye. They move forward when they need to do a calculation. We simply as humans can't do that. And this illuminates why we need these concepts of human to machine teaming. So how long is it before the machine realizes that I can't even multiply eight times seven and just determines that I'm a complete waste of oxygen and gets rid of us? Calm down. It's less intrusive than you think. Okay, but you've got people talking about they want to have implants where artificial intelligence just makes things pop up in front of their eyeballs. I mean, why would an everyday American want something like that? While the average person wouldn't really need that, it would really enhance their decision-making or save lives. Airmen across the world could greatly benefit from that kind of technology. Okay, it's movie time again. So now we're talking about battle droids like Star Wars. I mean, analyzing and calculating the probability of success and repairing the ship as it's flying around so the pilot doesn't have to do it. No, no. I mean, AI, it can sort through vast amounts of data and form connections that we humans cannot see because our vision is so limited. Our ability to link components within a set of data is limited by our ability to grasp and retain information. Oftentimes, we're so focused on what we're looking for that we can't see what's there. So what he's saying is, is that an AI and human team could bridge that gap. They could work in concert. You were mentioning data. It's like any computer though, right? I mean, how do we make sure that the AI is getting the right information to make the correct decisions? I mean, it's just like any other computer, right? Garbage in, garbage out. Well. It depends on how would you define as the, the right or good data. Okay, well, something like Snapchat, okay? You've got facial recognition software that looks at your face and puts goofy little ears on you, makes you look like a unicorn and all that kind of stuff, except there's uh, all kind of research going on right now and data being collected that people of color, it doesn't work as well. And it has a very, very hard time recognizing the facial features of people of color. So is that because it's hard to recognize people of color? Or is that because the algorithm that was put in there was made by someone who wasn't a person of color? Or, okay, even more sinister, right? When we look at AI facial recognition, the software has been used to find criminals or connect criminals to the scene of a crime. The AI can be influenced to ID false positives or even have implicit bias, which is what you're getting at with the Snapchat algorithm um, and the trouble it's having finding the faces of people of color. Um, and so if the data that was gathered and was fed into the AI was written by people with that bias, then the AI will have that bias. Mr. Comendo actually uh, commented more on that during his interview. It's one of those areas where uh, on the very surface of it, it's e I don't wanna say it's easy, but uh, it's fairly straightforward to say, look, all, look, we need to be looking at this harder. Uh, and, and there's things we can do today to solve this. 
more complicated long-term is you say, well, how do you do this at scale for very large systems or very complicated systems? The fact that we have racist people in the world means that they had biased training when they were little, right? Uh, the fact that we have biased people generally means as a human system, we don't do a good job of having diversity and inclusion in our training data sets as little babies, right? Uh, or, you know, we have all these other data influences from parents or TV or whatever it is. So if you were to look at it from that perspective, you'd say, well, how are we going to avoid societal implicit or, you know, baked in biases uh, to society? How are we going to avoid that for machine and computational systems if we haven't even figured it out for human systems? So ensuring that there isn't bias inherent in the data is is something that needs to be solved. But the thing that really concerns me about the data is, is the way that people are contributing their data online. And then things like Facebook are just handing that data over to the government. Um, I mean, that Netflix film, The Social Dilemma, is talking about all of those and I think it's I think it's opening a lot of people's eyes is that we are actually contributing to our own loss of privacy. Yeah, but what about that is actually unethical? Like, do we take the time to read what's in the user terms and agreement? And is it the big data's fault that we don't read it? Okay, well, all right. I'll give you that. And the terms of the capitalist society, buyer beware. You really should be reading those things. But on the other hand, those things can can be broken down to give the user a better understanding of what big tech is going to be using their data for. I mean, there's there's the official version, which is we want to make your experience better. But then they sell your data to somebody. Their goal is not to make your user experience better. It's to manipulate you either, you know, the least nefarious way by pushing ads at you that you don't necessarily want to see. But it can be used for all kinds of other things too. And I think we kind of saw that with the Cambridge Analytica situation with the elections. I mean, I'd agree with you there. Cambridge Analytica was wild. And that documentary did open my eyes to uh, what your data could be used for. It is kind of concerning and a little scary. The other thing is you start looking at what's going on in China with this citizen social rating system. I mean, they're observed all the time and everything that they post online is observed and recorded and then judged. So you put something, if you're a Chinese citizen, you put something on WeChat that the government doesn't think is the right thing to do. And all of a sudden it starts having real life consequences for you because the government has deemed that what you think is wrong. What even is WeChat? I feel like you're back on the Netflix chain, Mr. Eddins. And like, are you sure you didn't just watch that on Black Mirror? No, I'm absolutely. I, I'm talking about present day China. And, you know, you were talking about talking to Captain Kanan about all of this stuff. And I think from the interview that you did with him that he actually addressed this point. As for China, we think of them as a backwater nation. 
but I don't think we quite comprehend how sophisticated digitally they are. While their lives or pictures we see are utter atrocities and wholly unacceptable, it's mutually exclusive of the fact that for many their lives are better because of applications you're talking about like WeChat. So broadly, China's a major driver of AI surveillance worldwide. Technology linked to Chinese companies, particularly Huawei, Hype Vision, and ZTE, supply this technology in 63 countries. By the way, 36 of those have already signed on to China's Belt and Road Initiative, and Huawei is responsible for providing much of this. No other company in the world comes close. And these product pitches come with loans that push people to buy more of their equipment and share their data, and hence in a very virtuous sort of cycle for AI, things just keep advancing and getting better and innovating and we ask new questions. This is particularly clear in countries like Kenya and uh, Zimbabwe, Ecuador, and others where China's gaining experience by exporting their model and the use case is, and the concern for all of society should be, and the questions we should ask as individuals, is how much do these incentives of capability come with repressive technologies? So for instance, in, in, in Africa alone, the largest funder infrastructure uh, is China, and according to Deloitte, that's somewhere around $150 billion. And for countries, I get taking that loan, right? That's money to, to help their families and to be better. But the question is, what does it come with? For instance, in Kenya, when 20 some odd percent of its external debt is just China. So what happens then? How does the story play out? Well, they need $5 billion more dollars to finish the train track there in their agreement to better their transportation, but it comes with having to sign on as a Belt and Road Initiative country, right? So there's the carrot and the stick going on, and it is a tough argument to make to the general public who maybe isn't aware of AI or think it's just for those IT people to say, hey, when you use that application TikTok, just understand that that data it's collecting, which with more data, AI gets better. So every time you use any machine learning application that changes your face into whatever it is, it's making better algorithms. And by the way, those better algorithms are being used currently objectively and clearly by the Chinese government to search for you know, Uyghur Muslims in China and put them in essentially camps. That's a, that's a, that's a tough argument. How, how can you argue to someone who isn't necessarily familiar with AI that by using that phone, you're enabling that repressive use? It is out of line with how you view the world through human dignity, how we do. Well. What we just you know, showcase there is why it's so important to talk. That's what's going on with these countries. All of a sudden, the, the game is much bigger than it was before. It is all instruments of power at play at once, you know, diplomatic, information, military, and economic. That, I mean, that's, that's a definition of it. I'm kind of familiar with what China has been accused of doing to their populations of Uyghur Muslims. I've seen the videos on social media of the camps and read stories about the horrible conditions and torture um, people have, who have reportedly been released from there have endured and have witnessed. 
After lying about the existence of the camps, which is now estimated to include more than 380 sites, and has contained more than a million Uyghur Muslims, China has claimed that they are re-education camps and that they are aimed at fighting extremism. But they've also been accused of a mass genocide and making the populations in those camps pick cotton. So I've heard all kinds of rumors on social media, but I'm a little bit confused about how this goes into a citizen rating scheme. Not that we shouldn't be paying attention to this, but the Uyghur Muslim situation, let's put that as a side as a radical outlier of, of Chinese society. They're doing exactly the same thing with their, their desirable citizens in the cities. I mean, they have cameras everywhere. No one goes anywhere in Beijing and they're not observed. So if you, for instance, are a Chinese citizen and you're jaywalking, a camera will pick that up. Their facial recognition software is so good and they have data on all of their citizens that that person is immediately identified and their face is put up on an electronic billboard in the town square to shame them for having the nerve to jaywalk. I mean, that's annoying. And in my opinion, it's a little extreme. Other than the facial recognition and then being able to identify you off the bat, it's not that bad. Okay, so let me give you another example. Let's go back to WeChat. Captain Kanan mentioned this earlier. It's the center of all the money and the social transactions within China. WeChat is used for everything. So it's not just uh, silly posts and back and forth between friends. It's one application that pretty much encompasses 90% of what you do in your daily life. And so this is like how the Chinese book medical appointments, they buy suites at the local 7-Eleven, they do all their social networking, of course. And so let's just say you visit the doctor and he tells you to lay off the suites, okay? It's bad for your health. And this is all recorded in the recommendations that he's given you or she's given you as a patient. Well, then you walk right out the door and go to a convenience store and buy a big bag of Smarties and some potato chips and start chowing down and facial recognition software sees you doing that. And now your ability to get certain jobs is limited because you're not, you're becoming a health risk. It, it has an effect on your social standing because the Chinese government is saying, okay, well, you've been told the right thing to do and you insist on not doing the right thing. So that means you're untrustworthy. All of that data gets monitored through WeChat and it's, it's a way to try and manipulate people's social choices to be more in line with what the government thinks that they should be. Yeah, but like just because the government thinks, you, like America, right? Like the government thinks we should do certain things and not everybody does them. I, I'm having trouble seeing the real world application or consequence for the social rating. In an authoritarian society where the government has the last word on everything, this is a situation where they can take your social standing and you literally can be put at the bottom of a list for a job that you want. You can literally be denied the ability to live in a certain neighborhood that you want to live in because you are deemed by the government to be undesirable. So your social citizen rating or your standing can limit where you can live, what jobs you can get, what you can do. It's collecting all of that data and it's making their AI smarter and faster. How does the Air Force and DOD compete in ways that like keeps our AI ethical 
but doesn't give that much governance over our citizens, all the while collecting enough data to make our AI smart. And, and that's the rub, as far as I'm concerned, living in a de democratic society. It's how do we keep human control over an artificial intelligence and do it in an ethical way? And I think Captain Kanan talked about that, too. So when it comes to ensuring our uh, ethical use of it, how we're thinking about it, I think that what makes us special is we get to start those conversations up front. But interestingly enough, the engineer who's making it doesn't have the answer. And that airman who's using it on the line, for instance, at DCGS, uh, doesn't necessarily have the answer either. And the lawyer that's ensuring that it meets our ethics principles and it is legal and fair doesn't have the answer either. Those three people have to be in a room together. And when they come up with the solution and exactly how to create it in ways that best reflect us, they need somebody who can push it over the line and actually sign a contract. So someone else has to be in that room the whole time to understand it. What we get to see now is that when it comes to products such as AI and digital transformation, it is everyone together in the Department of the Air Force and by necessity, they have to work together. It's not about delivering some engine or a wing someone just makes on their own. It's totally different now. And I think that that's something that's inspiring and it's that something that the next generation, adults under 40 and you know Generation Z in our workforce, they do work well together. And I think that in the digital sphere, they're the future rock stars. And that's why everyone has to be together on it. They're the greatest strategic thinkers, those groups together. And um, for AI, it has to be all together at Jump Street uh, or else we're gonna make poor ethical decisions and leave some people out. You know, you were talking earlier about artificial intelligence just being a tool, like a hammer. It does what it's designed to do. But I'm, I'm willing to wager it wasn't too long after the hammer was invented that somebody used it to harm another human being. And that generally seems to be the pattern in, in human history is that we develop a technology for the benefit of society, but it doesn't take too long before people start figuring out more nefarious uses for that technology. So I was reading that the Department of Defense has been working with the Defense Innovation Unit to establish ethical guidelines for the use of artificial intelligence. Um, I mean, why is that important? Tell me why that needs to be uh, a priority. Well, you know, the way I look at it is it's such a big, it's a big concept, it's a big topic that uh, you can't, you can't set out to just, you know, put a bunch of rules in place and expect that you're gonna have the outcomes that you want, largely because it's such a fast moving thing. Uh, and it's changing and morphing. You know, you say, for example, somebody's gonna take something in, they're gonna use it for nefarious purposes. There's certainly always the case where you have, you know, criminals or, or whoever who wanna use whatever technology. In many cases, what we would consider a nefarious use case is our adversaries' non-nefarious use case, they're using it as an advantage, right? And so I think the for, for the DOD and the US or anybody, generally speaking, I would say that Really what it comes down to is accountability and responsibility for how we use things. Uh, those are the cases that I think get the muddiest, right? Where we say, we're gonna use this for a secret use and we're not gonna necessarily tell everybody about it. That is, that's a question that we have to wrestle with as a national security community to say, 
look, we've got a lot of our citizenry that's very uncomfortable with the amount of information that we're gathering. Well, there's a reason that we're gathering that information. And if we can't be public about it, then they need to be able to trust us. If they can't trust us, then we need to be more public about it or, or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of this back and forth on how do you build alignment with machine systems and human systems, especially when you start building more autonomous systems. How do you make sure that we are value aligned? And, and there's no simple answer to that. We're in fairly early days of like really no kidding applicability to this stuff. I think in practice, what actually happens is people just go off and run with whatever technology for whatever needs to be done at the kind of zeitgeist of the day. And then in retrospect, people say, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have done that with that thing over there. Uh, and so helping try to think through that stuff ahead of time, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit idealistic, but I think at the same time, we have to do that. I think we have to be able to say, here are the here are the guidelines we're going to use, and we're going to be trans again transparent and have responsibility for how we utilize these things and hold people accountable. And I think we need to do a better job of that. And that's not a statement necessarily about technology; it's just a statement about uh, how how we lead as leaders. Everybody has a different threshold for when the line is crossed, when it's too far, right? So, like you've got Russia on one hand who doesn't necessarily believe that a cyber attack or a cyber hack is an act of war. You got the U.S. that is like, no, that's an act of war or you're crossing the line. And then you got China that's doing their own thing uh, as far as AI is concerned. And so with those three completely different ideologies, how does the U.S. compete when the other two are getting all of this data by any means necessary? Well, you know, I mean, I think the, the Department of Defense at least has fairly robust thought about this and it's really codified in the laws of armed conflict and how we think about how we prosecute combat operations or any type of kinetic operation or otherwise to our adversaries or otherwise. Geneva Convention is there for a reason. There's certain things we're not going to do because we agreed to, to not do that because we think it's bad for society, bad for people, right? I guess you could argue that we don't have something similar for, for example, cyber operations to such a degree. Like we have a little bit, but it's not as codified as we do for ground operations, let's say. As an example, uh, you, you can no longer build or deploy uh, unmaintained mines, right? So there's a ban on mines. Well, arguably a mine is a non-discriminatory automated system. In other words, it doesn't care who steps on it, but it's automated in the sense that it's gonna do a certain number of things without human input. And so you could argue that that's a, a really good example of how have we already went, gone through this once for an automate, automated system and how do we apply that to other systems that we've built, right? So the, it's a little fuzzier, right? There's some gray there in the sense of, of how we do that, but applying the same concepts that we have in generating and uh, kind of instilling the laws of armed conflict into our operators, I think we just need to do the same thing uh, as we build, continue to build different types of weapons uh, or capabilities. I was reading the PDG uh, like a good staff sergeant should, and I came across a section about the Air Force and advanced technology. Um, it said something that really caught my eye. Uh, section 16.21, Empowered Airmen and Cultures said, the airmen of today are already well-versed in innovative technologies and will propel us into the Air Force of tomorrow by integrating data-centric processes at the core of our operations. Machine learning and new technologies will lead us to a new age of human-to-machine teaming by putting airmen on the loop instead of in the loop. The Air Force will automate where appropriate, 
and free airmen to do things while letting machines do machine things. So, so this is like the, the Skyborg initiative where we're talking about unmanned aerial teaming. So you've got one pilot in, let's say, one fighter aircraft, F-35, F-22, what have you. And then uh, a group of other aircraft that are utilizing artificial intelligence, but technically the leader of the flight is more or less in control of the entire mission. Is that what we're talking about? Yes, because they still want humans to be at the core of every decision. They just need AI to provide more data so that they're making more informed decisions, if that makes sense. Yeah, I got it. And so, you know, I mean, is this, you know, is that same technology that's being used for something that seems so incredibly complicated and advanced, is it being used in other things too? I mean, making sure people get paid on time, making sure that um, that their promotions go through on time and are reviewed on time? So that's what I would hope, right? When it talks about, you know, letting humans do human things and machines do machine things, I would hope that there's an algorithm out there or an AI out there that, you know, can make sure finance corrects a mistake before they have to take 75% of your pay when it wasn't your fault in the first place. Or, you know, that you, you can plug what you did into a system and it can write the bullets, you know, on its own. No more writing bullets. Okay, all right, easy. I, you know, a girl can dream, okay? But all in all, for the Air Force and for the DOD, when we think about artificial intelligence, its initial uses should be to fix problems, to eliminate things that take our mind off of taking care of airmen and their families, and to give us a competitive edge that we need to win the next fight. I've heard that there's a joint artificial intelligence center that is experimenting with implementing uh, these technologies for, you know, other things like healthcare is not just airmen, that's interdisciplinary teams. So people collaborating across various fields in AI and they create new algorithms and technologies and solutions um, that kind of straddle that civilian military, military barrier. Yeah, and the, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, or the Jake, is actually working on some really cool, you know, and exciting projects like um, an AI that can detect cancerous cells and is accurate like well above 90% of the time. Right. And, you know, what's the, uh, the thing that MIT is working on, the AI guardian that assists human in successing, you know, it suggests actions from data and then giving the human beings a list of options instead of having to wade through a bunch of, you know, um, paralysis by analysis, you know? I feel like you heard what I said, and now you're trying to one-up me, sir. I am. Absolutely. I heard that I heard that on Netflix. Analysis by paralysis or paralysis by... I can't even remember how it goes anymore. I need an AI to figure it out. You got to get off of Netflix, sir. We are all on the same time. There's no overlord. <sighs> well, okay. You say that, but in closing, I would just like to cover my bets here and just say computer overlord if you're listening i am on your side uh, somebody turn the recording off please <laughs> the debrief podcast is a product of defense media activity at fort meade maryland you can find other episodes of the debrief at altitude fysa and all air force podcasts on itunes and divots thanks for listening <laughs>